You are listening to Your Practice Made Perfect, support, protection, and advice for practicing medical professionals. Brought to you by SVMIC. Thanks for joining us today. And on today's podcast, we have a gentleman with us that has gone through the Tennessee Medical Foundation, the physician program uh, here in Tennessee that supports doctors that are dealing with uh, various problems from addiction to mental health to other issues. And uh, we have a physician with us for the purposes of this conversation today. We're going to refer to as Dr. Bob. So Dr. Bob, let me be the first to welcome you. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you, Brian. Thanks for inviting me, and uh, thank you for SVMIC for all they do for us uh, Tennessee physicians. Well, thank you for that. Let's start from the very beginning, because I want to make sure that everyone hears a complete story of what this looks like and how it starts and how you find yourself where you do. So, Dr. Bob, let's just go back to the beginning. When did your problem start, or at least when did the activity start that later became a problem that you realized? I was born the last of five, and my siblings all seemed to uh, drink and drug, but they grew out of it. I would say my first alcohol intake was uh, unexpectedly from my brothers at about age eight, and I, I did get intoxicated. I started drinking on my own at the age of 12 and did that by stealing my parents' liquor. And wouldn't take all of my dad's liquor, so we took everything he had and mixed it in one jar and just drank it. I never drank alcohol for the taste and still wouldn't. I always drank for effect. Shortly after that, uh, friends of mine in the neighborhood started uh, smoking marijuana, and that really uh, excited me, which is interesting. Back then, you know, when you first smoke it, you usually don't get high the first time around, and most people would not like that. But people like me tend to want to come back and do it again. Marijuana from about age 13 until... uh, probably medical school was a near daily thing. We had an adage back then that if you studied for a test stoned, you had to take the test stoned. So since I was usually in that shape when I studied, I had to find somewhere to be able to do that before I took the test, which was difficult in junior high, but in high school it was quite easy. Back then, this so appalled the younger people that had a smoking line, and you could go between classes and smoke. Wow. And I did not smoke cigarettes at the time, but I would take the illegal weed out there with me and smoke before class several times a day, actually. By the time I was 18, I had done nearly every illegal drug that was available. I had never stuck a needle in me. I guess that's one proud thing. And I hadn't done PCP, but uh, LSD, Quaaludes, Valium, painkillers, any kind of alcohol, any kind of pot, I had done it and liked it all, unfortunately. Also, I hung with a rough crowd. By the time I was 18, I had been in uh, 15 automobile accidents, and uh, eight of those were totaled automobiles. Wow. Never got hurt. And I find that to be God's always been looking out after me, and that will kind of continue. I had a uh, pretty significant accident when I was 13 years old, burned both my legs, uh, spent six weeks in the hospital. I was already drinking and drugging by then, so there's no way I would blame that accident on any of my addiction problems. But the old uh, lemonade from lemons, the doctor that took care of me, I was just very impressed by his diligence and his uh, fortitude and his honesty, even though his honesty hurts sometimes. And it was shortly after that I decided I wanted to be a physician. So that's really when the idea of becoming a physician really started for you. Did it even cross your mind at that time, knowing that, as you had said, you had been drinking and drugging? Did it ever cross your mind at that time, maybe I need to give this up, or I guess maybe in an addict situation, that really never plays a part? I think your latter statement's correct. In an addict situation, it never really fits apart. I came from a very intelligent family. I can't say I'm any more intelligent than anybody else, but I was able to do schoolwork and able to do the partying together. 
which is an unusual combination, as I have come to find out. I did not realize that at the time. You know, I took a lot of honors classes in high school, and I, I guess myself and the guy that sat with me are about the only two that were druggies. I didn't realize that everybody else wasn't. But yeah, that planted the seed. That planted the seed. So, uh, you know, back to high school, I, I, you know, I played football. I, I actually took some mescaline, which is like LSD, and played a football game. Wow. Did okay. It was a... Uh, junior varsity, but still, I was out there. I had perfect attendance until 10th grade, and then between mid-10th grade and graduation, I missed about 200 days. Most of those were skips, but six weeks of it was an expulsion for being drunk at school. Wow. So uh, the consequences are great. About the time I came to graduate high school, I was very diligent about that, and, and I'm a plan A person. I don't have a plan B. <laughs> um, I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying that's the way I am. Right. And I went to uh, college with the uh, sole intent of getting into medical school. Got to college, got caught smoking pot in a dorm. First year, was on uh, probation for that. Had to talk to the dean. Uh, everything was fine after that. I have a knack of uh, getting away with something 100 times and getting caught the 101st. Really? Which you'll see is a continuation of the story. I do have an interesting little twist in the story, and I won't bore the listeners by all the uh, individual escapades that I had growing up, but I think the car wrecks kind of tells you who and where I was at at the time, is uh, by the time I got to college, I was settling down. Most people get rowdy and crazy when they go to college. Right. As you can tell, I've already did it all. And, uh, you know, that whole adage of study stone, take test stone wasn't as good in college. And I can tell you, absolutely doesn't work in medical school. But, <laughs> <laughs> so, so another teen myth is busted here. Right. Okay. <laughs> and so college was fairly uneventful. You know, partied when I could, studied when I could, walked a pretty straight line. But obviously, you did well enough to get into medical school. I found it interesting when you were saying the ability to be a good student and still be captured by the demons of the habit was really a curse, to be honest, because you never hit rock bottom, did you? Absolutely. Although I had transient consequences, I did not have what we call our bottom. It was just another bump in the road. And I felt, you know, okay, I, I got caught this time, but, you know, those hundred other times I did not get caught. I actually uh, changed colleges midway. I went from a state university to a uh, Christian university. Although I believed in God and had a faith, I had no act on it. The school I went to, uh, most of the people there grew up in the school from kindergarten to college. And I hate to say they were beat over the head with the Bible, but they were beat over the head with the Bible and they were tired of it. And I was forced to take Bible classes and I was forced to go to chapel and I absolutely loved it. I call that when I I tell my story outside of here, one of my first spiritual awakenings, that uh, there is a God. I'm not it, and the world is not actually about me. Now, trust me, I forget that regularly, (laughs) Um, but it becomes a little bit more permanent. And uh, this school had a very good acceptance rate to uh, medical school. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I had the grades. I did okay on the uh, MCAT test, and I did okay on the interview. And I knew if I ever got an interview, I'd probably get in because when they said, why do you want to be a doctor? I would refer back to that accident I had when I was 13. And why would they not let me in for something like that? Right. Medical school was, um, from an alcohol and drug standpoint, very uneventful. Drank beer, you know, certain weekend times, uh, smoke a little pot to help me rest. But for the most part, that four years was an extremely busy time. And I didn't really have time to do that kind of stuff. I consider time to be somewhat of a, a burden if somebody has too much of that. And uh, yeah. that will play out here a little bit later also. I had met my wife at the uh, Christian college. We eventually got pregnant and then married. Um, 
check the order out there. Right. <laughs> I had my first son when I was a senior in medical school. And he is currently a malpractice defense attorney here in Nashville. Wow. Okay. I told him to take the other side. It pays better, but uh, he said he couldn't do that. that. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can appreciate that. Yeah, I do too. I like that. And so uh, we had kids, bam, bam, bam. So we had three kids right off the bat. And off to residency. Same thing. Busy especially the first year. A little beer here and there, a little pot, rarely. Um, was just busy. So there was no point then in your training in medical school or residency that your addiction really affected your ability to learn, practice, or anything like that. Did it go unnoticed by professors and attending physicians and things like that? Or did they have an idea something was happening? No, it absolutely went unnoticed by most folks. Um, And again, that four years of medical school, three years of residency was not at all a sober period, but it was a more restricted period. I had a wife, a very young family. I loved spending time with the kids. I loved working. When I had 100-hour weeks, I was absolutely fine with that. I would even moonlight to try to pay bills. So uh, it was just... Just the, uh, the business of life was allowing the drugs and alcohol to take a back seat. They weren't out of the car, but they were still in the back seat. <laughs> um, I still carried them around with me. Right. When you wrapped up residency, then you have that decision that, okay, now it's time to go into practice, whether it be with a group or independent practice. Was there a concern in the back of your head that now I'm about to get out and I'm going to have more time because I have studied so hard and this, this demon's really going to potentially catch up with me, or did that never cross your mind? You know, that never entered my mind. Um, the thoughts about time being a, a little bit of a curse and this uh, addiction being a little curse are things that I have found out now with 2020 <laughs> hindsight. hindsight. Mm-hmm. Surely did not have that in front of me. I'd done a family practice residency, and I decided I absolutely hated working in an office. Uh, but I had moonlit in uh, ERs, and so I had many lucrative ER offers and wound up taking that and moving back home. And that worked very well. It allowed me to uh, have a little bit of a say-so in my schedule. Kids were at the point where they're playing sports and school things and all that, and I was still able to uh, coach every one of their teams, um, You know, made every one of their school functions. My life was scheduled around what the kids were doing, as was my wife's also. And it hadn't yet slipped on me. I was starting to drink a little bit more. I liked to fish, and we'd go out and, you know, drink beer and, and smoke some pot. But uh, for the most part, well, you know, kept it between the lines. Now, if you ask my wife that question, you might get a different answer. <laughs> I have to let you know it's from my perspective. Sure. I have a very clear-cut point as when the uh, opiate addiction started. So tell us about that. So you're you're practicing along, and like you said, you're consuming alcohol and the occasional marijuana, but obviously at some point it gets taken up a notch, correct? Correct. Walk us through that. What led up to that? One, that made you change, and two, what did that look like at that point? That's a good question, and it's actually a really good point for your readers, because this is how things like this sneak up. Okay. So I, I took a stint at a walk-in clinic. It was a year of transition. After being at the walk-in clinic for a few months, the nurse, who I, I very much love, was a good fellow, said, hey, we're cleaning out the sample closet. We've got a sample carton of uh, cough syrup. Do you want it? And I said, not really. And he said, well, we're going to throw it away. I said, okay. He said, well, you sure you don't want to take it home? You might want to need it for later. I said, what the hell? I'll take it home. It was MN or M clear. I'm not sure. It had either two and a half or five milligrams of hydrocodone per teaspoon. Um, and I, you know, I took it home. There were nine one and a half ounce bottles and I put them in my closet and totally forgot about them. And they had stayed in my closet about three months until lo and behold, I had a cough. 
I took the bottle out and a teaspoon and I met, no, I didn't do that at all. I took the bottle out and took a big <laughs> slurp from it because I had a cough. And in about 20 to 30 minutes, a feeling came over me that was so great. It was a, a true sense of euphoria that all is good. I'm happy. I have energy. I have focus and nothing can go wrong. I knew it from that moment that that was something I absolutely loved. And that started what I call a 15-year love affair. And that 15 years is marked by five years of sporadic use. Another five years of fairly regular use, nearly daily, but uh, certain lines I would never cross. And then the last five years is I have to have this drug or I will die. And it all started from, you know, having cough syrup available to me for six months, three at the office, three at home. And I actually took it as directed. And people like me, get those effects from those kind of medicines. It's interesting as a doctor, if you talk to a patient and they have a pain, you say, I'm going to give you some hydrocodone for your pain. They say, I don't like that. It makes me sleepy. It makes me dizzy. It makes me nauseated. Right. That person's probably not going to be a drug addict. If they tell you that it gives them energy, it makes them focus, they get all kinds of stuff done and they feel great, guaranteed they're going to be an addict. Those are kind of like the key terms that you know they, they perceive the narcotic in a different way. Absolutely. I mean, I don't think anybody takes a narcotic thinking they're going to be awake, alert, and ready to sure. go. And you know, and the interesting part of your story at this point to me is the fact that you had this addiction and this addictive personality probably as well, but it lay dormant. It was the social use and things of that nature. And then there was a very typical, hey, I have a cough. I need to take some medicine for it. And you just happened to grab one of the samples that had an opiate, a narcotic in it. And it was just that moment that led to that 15-year love affair, as you say. It was immediate. It was immediate. And it was insidious. I didn't see it coming. It blossomed and it grew. But yeah, that was the seed that started it all. That's exactly correct. And it can be that simple for really anybody that might have an underlying addiction. It could be that one seed that could do that. That's the beginning of of this 15-year love affair. So at some point, it is becoming a snowball. And it's getting, you're having to have it, having to have it. At what point in here does that become, okay, this is something that I'm doing because I enjoy it. And now it's starting to affect my life, my career, my everything. What happened? Where's that transition? That's probably in the second five years. The way it worked is I had a lot of friends around here. I write you a prescription. You go to the pharmacy, you pay cash, you bring me half back. Oh, okay. We'll do it again next month which is a little unusual for an ER doctor to do that. You know, it went from one or two prescriptions every other month to three prescriptions a month to in the second five years was probably five to 10 prescriptions a month. And in the final five years was anywhere between 20 and 25 prescriptions a month with high dose narcotics and lots of numbers of them. And it was that agreement of go get it. You get half, I get half. Right. And I mean, it's really starting to grow. What happened that got you at a point that your medical license was in trouble? What was that event? Before I actually answer that question, I will answer it. The strangest thing is in writing these prescriptions from the very get-go, from the early part, I always knew that I would be caught. Really? Always knew. I was just waiting. Is it this one? Is it the next one? Is it the one before? So you didn't see yourself necessarily as 10 feet tall and bulletproof. You no, expected to be caught. I expected to be caught. I know that pharmacies have to report twice a month every controlled substance that comes into their pharmacy. And I was amazed that some pharmacist is not looking at this saying, what is this guy writing these people all these prescriptions for? But it never happened. 
And in fact, the event that actually uh, put my medical license and my career and all at jeopardy was a friend of mine, one of the guys from the very early get-go, you know, went to junior high, high school, et cetera, et cetera, with him, couldn't make contact with me. I was out of town. He went and wrote his own prescription. Uh, he got busted by it. And when the drug task force asked him about it, they pulled out a, basically a laundry list, you know, where all these prescriptions come to you, to your wife, to your son, to your father, to your mother. And of course, I was writing them in their name. He was getting them filled in the same story. And uh, when he told them that I had written them, they didn't believe him. They said that they knew me and there was no way I would do that. Wow. They didn't know me. And that was the first shot. And then they you know, started going through these pharmacy records, starting putting all this together, and went around to 20 or 30 people that I had been writing scripts to, and I was the very last one. And they showed up on my door uh, July 1st, 2011, and they wanted medical records, uh, of which I had none, obviously. They had two drug task force detectives and the medical board's investigator. And uh, at that point, I turned in a resignation letter to my partners to, to let them know they, they refused to take it. And I, I told them, it doesn't matter whether you refuse it, it's going to happen. And then within a week or so, they were showing up at the hospital looking for medical records. And then at that point, the chief of staff called me and uh, advised that I get in touch with Roland Gray, who was the medical director of Tennessee Medical Foundation at that point. And I did. And uh, luckily, Roland was in town. And, and Mike Todd, who's the uh, assistant director, both Great people. I love these people. And, and I love the Tennessee Medical Foundation for what all they, they do for people like me. Sure. They met with me, and I, I think they're so used to having people, you know, somebody else's fault, or I didn't do it, or I didn't have that big a problem. Playing the blame game. Playing the blame game. Yeah. I was done. I, I had had it. You hit uh, your rock bottom. I, guess. I had hit my rock bottom. I was so deep that my prayers to God were, Lord, strike me suddenly sober, or don't let me wake up. Wow. And when I woke up, I was mad at God for not doing his job. Would I have killed myself? Absolutely. I had a nice life insurance plan. I'm sure there's a suicide rider on it. And there's many a night when I got off work at 1 or 2 in the morning that I went up to the Natchez Trace Bridge and tried to figure out how I could drive my vehicle off the bridge to make it look like an accident. Sure. I'm not afraid of dying. I'm afraid of being maimed and leaving people, somebody in that shape. Right. But I didn't know about recovery. I didn't know, to be honest, and just go seek help. I was so worried about everybody knowing, and obviously because of that, I got a much worse consequence. Yeah. And I was just scared. I mean, just scared. I couldn't live with the dope, and I couldn't live without the dope. And I just saw no way out, no way whatsoever. You really felt trapped, it sounds like. I was trapped. Death was the best option I was coming up with. This is coming full circle now. You've got an addiction issue and now you're starting to get some depression and some other mental components that are involved here that's taking you down a really, really ugly road. So I'm assuming at this point now you've got all these investigators with the Drug Task Force and also the Tennessee Licensure Board. So I'm assuming you had maybe a consent order or did they suspend your license altogether? What was the outcome of that? You know, I talked to Roland, I talked to Mike from the Tennessee Medical Foundation and they advised that I, I go to treatment immediately, which actually sounded like a great idea to me. And so, you know, I made calls that night and uh, within... 36 hours, I was in Atlanta at treatment. Okay. I want to go back to the dope for a bit okay. and, and talk about this. So uh, your listeners can't see lines that I'm making, but um, if this is, you know, normal, sure, addicts like me take drugs to get higher than normal. Way above that, right? Uh, way above that, yeah. And so uh, 
at some point in the addiction, I would say the second five years, I was taking drugs to become normal. Really? Yeah. And in the last five years, I started so below normal, I was taking drugs to get myself to normal and never got there in any single day. Wow. Couldn't live with it. I couldn't live without it back to that. It was your fuel to keep going. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you hit the nail on the head right there. I needed it for energy. I needed it for focus. When it was not there, my body felt so bad. But the depression, the hopelessness, and the uh, total lack of any drive to do anything was there without the drugs. Even the practice of medicine didn't excite you anymore without the drugs. Absolutely. In fact, um, there was a point in, in my career that last five years where I was a much better doctor on dope than I was not on dope. Wow. That being said, though, after I was gone, the hospital was concerned about their liability and they reviewed 10% of my charts from the previous year and found zero medical errors, zero documentation errors. Right. Which actually made me feel good. That's the only thing that's made me feel good about all of this. Is that through all of these addiction issues, nobody else was harmed as far as your delivering of medical care. Correct. I got you. So now going back, was your license, did they give you a consent order? Did they suspend your license? Or often you get consent orders and then there are certain parameters you have to meet and then they come back and put your license either on probation or what? How did that process go for you? So it took a while. So that was in uh, 2011. Okay. In the summer. And uh, my board meeting was in September of 2012. Okay. I had not practiced in that interim. They suspended my license for 60 days and then put it on a uh, probationary status for five years, which is where it is right now. It was probably mandated by the consent order that you become an active part of the TMF, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, the consent orders, I think all of them in Tennessee require you be uh, under a contract with Tennessee Medical Foundation. And basically, the contract is uh, a combination of your aftercare recommendations from treatment and certain stipulations put on you by the uh, medical boards. And generally, those are five-year contracts. Right. And under that, you you meet with your representative at the Tennessee Medical Foundation quarterly. You call daily, or now you log in daily to see if you need a drug screen. And you're required to go to a certain amount of Alcoholics Anonymous or some type of recovery meeting and document it. And uh, and a weekly caduceus meeting, which is uh, healthcare professionals, because it's not just doctors, it's doctors, dentists, pharmacists, veterinarians, meet once a week. And it's partly a recovery meeting and a partly a professionals meeting. It's very reassuring that there's other physicians that are ahead of you in the process and have walked those, those walks and behind you in that process that you can pull along with you. Um, and so Tennessee Medical Foundation has been very helpful in uh, keeping that going. So it's often, like you said, mandated, but I would guess that once a physician becomes a part of the Tennessee Medical Foundation and their program and what they require you to do, there is amazing amount of benefit that comes from that. How did the Tennessee Medical Foundation's program, all the way from what Dr. Gray and the associates there did for you to current day, how did that affect your life with not only your family, but your professional life? What difference did that make it to you? It's a great difference. Um, They're always there. They always answer the phone. You may not get the person you need at that particular time. If you need to meet with somebody, they're always available. The mandated meetings and the mandated quarterly meetings with your uh, counselor are, are really very easy. Physicians and other healthcare professionals that are under a program like this have about a 90% recovery rate. Wow. The population at large is 10% or less recovery rate. 
And that's even after multiple treatment. And it's because there's somebody there, somebody you can lean on, somebody that's you have to be accountable for. Sure. Accountability is a great thing. You're always having to check in and right. somebody's keeping up yeah. with you, keeping track. Is calling for a, a urine drug screen daily a pain? Not really. Is it going to give one a couple times a month a pain? A little bit. But there have been times in my recovery where a drink or a drug might have sounded good. Didn't sound good for long, but to be honest, might have sounded good. And that looming thought of, what if I have to take a drug screen soon? I don't know what actual thing is keeping me sober today, but I know I do a lot of things and I'm afraid to drop any of them. I am so scared of that life that I led. And from stories that I've heard, and including yours today, addiction is something that you're never cured from. It's always a constant fight, isn't it? Exactly. And that's what the TMF provides is that support and that accountability to help you continue that fight. And I hear there are physicians that go through that program that continue on to be fantastic physicians for years to come. And the credit is often given back to the Tennessee Medical Foundation on all that they did. That's absolutely correct. I could not have done it without them. My only uh, disappointment, I think your readers need to know, if you have any similar problems like mine, call them sooner rather than later. Because most of the time, if you go see them voluntarily, which I'm listed as voluntary, I'm not voluntary at all, but that's how they list me. <laughs> yeah, your name may get smeared a little bit. The bottom line is healthcare personnel, if you're out sick for whatever reason, be it alcohol, drugs, whatever, they're just happy to have you back and have you better. There's nothing worse than living a life of alcohol and drugs and seeing no way out. Dr. Bob, I want to tell you, I really appreciate you taking the time and giving us a little bit of an insight into your struggle, your addiction and how the Tennessee Medical Foundation helped you through that process because it all started by I had a cough and then ended up with cough syrup that had a narcotic in it and that took an underlying addiction and turned it into this, that there may be a lot of people out there that are that simple step away from a real addiction and problem. And I really appreciate you being here to share with us today. Absolutely. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Your Practice Made Perfect with your host, Brian Fortenberry. Listen to more episodes, subscribe to the podcast, and find show notes at svmic.com slash podcast. The contents of this podcast are intended for informational purposes only and do not constitute legal advice. Policyholders are urged to consult with their personal attorney for legal advice, as specific legal requirements may vary from state to state and change over time. All names in the case have been changed to protect privacy.